Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Some of the events crap me up, like mixed doubles archery. <laughs> <laughs> and then somebody made a fair point yesterday that I never really thought about on Twitter. They were like, what's the deal with like backstroke swimming? Like, like, like you wouldn't go backwards running on the track. <laughs> this, is, this is the point about like, is Michael Phelps the greatest Olympian of all time? And basically the, the answer is no, because if they did like the 350 meters in athletics, and the 300 meters and the 250 and then the 250 mm-hmm. sideways like then michael johnson would have like 20 gold medals like phelps does yeah yeah the other one that was i was watching earlier today um i was, I was trying to find anything desperately live one moment where everything across like the bbc and eurosport was just replays which just seems to be a problem with the coverage this year but the only thing i could find was three on three basketball yeah yeah what the like, why is five or something side football not in there? If we're going the three on three, three, though, I couldn't understand is like, why do they go two on two? That's like an actual thing yeah. all over the world. Like, this three on three is like, surely you'd just be better off just going normal basketball then. back to the love olympics podcast sorry the love tennis podcast uh where we are all about the five rings uh we'll be talking everything olympic and more to be fair because there is tennis going on outside the olympics uh we'll talk about cam norrie who's on holiday in mexico he's also playing tennis uh naomi osaka starting a fire um i'm told it was legal it was deliberate Andy Murray's got an injury but that hardly seems like news liam brody picked up a great win in japan uh, Iga Shvontek did not. Ash Barty also out of the Olympics. And we'll talk about Michael Cox, Calvin Bethan's favourite man. Uh, Calvin is, of course, here as always. Uh, the esteemed tennis coach and well-known sports arguer. Calvin, how are you? Your, your gears are quite ground, grinded this week. Yeah, yeah. Um, lots to go at. Um... <laughs> That's what we like to hear. I'm actually looking at getting arguing into the Olympics for uh, 20, <laughs> in Paris. Yeah, yeah, 2024. I think you get the kids in. Yeah, um, I the third, tra- I've been training for 42 years. So. <laughs> the third man in the room is, of course, George Belshaw of Metro.co.uk. Uh, George, how are you? I'm good. I'm just back off my post-Wimbledon holiday. Uh, oh, you took So you took two weeks? I take two weeks. Every year I take two weeks. Right, okay. Good um, R&R. Uh, so you've seen none of the tennis and you're going to offer absolutely no insight whatsoever, I'm sure. I always broadly follow everything. <laughs> right, OK. Uh, let's let's get cracking. We start, of course, with Naomi Osaka, who is back uh, playing tennis, which is great for us all to see. She was lighting the cauldron at the opening ceremony on Friday night, which was, well, I don't know about how people feel about Olympics opening ceremonies, but they're generally a bit weird and far too long. Uh, but Osaka lighting the cauldron was a big moment for her. Um, and Georgia was, I guess, a big moment for tennis generally. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I kind of, yeah, earlier admitted I'm not, I'm not the biggest Olympian in terms of, well, obviously not a great Olympian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we can exclusively reveal that George has never competed at the Olympics. But I, I, I've always struggled to get up to the hype. That a lot of people do with the Olympic Games. I, I don't know, just something about it doesn't really do it for me that much. Um, but having said that, I do recognise the cultural significance of 
this sort of moment. And of course, for tennis, it's a really great thing to see um, a tennis player kind of have that prominence. And I, I actually think it's been a pretty good PR tournament for tennis so far. You know, Djokovic, we don't say that very often. We really don't. And and Djokovic is actually a, a, on a PR hype. He's done incredibly well in terms of like he's having photos with all the athletes everywhere. Um, he's getting you know very positive reviews from everyone kind of around there. So. This has been a weirdly good week for tennis in terms of PR, and uh, I suspect it won't last, but it's good while it does. But Osaka's, of course, was a little less trivial, perhaps, than Djokovic taking a few selfies. But, you know, it's been, yeah, pretty good moment for her. And as you said, just really good to see her back and so far playing pretty brilliant hardcore tennis, as we've come to expect. Um, have any other tennis players lit the Olympic torch is that I mean I can't think of anyone who might have done it you'd be quite surprised wouldn't you really I mean as we've said before it's not really the pinnacle of um I can I can I can confirm that she is the first tennis player that light the Olympic torch you need the combination of it being hosted by that country and then also not to have a lot of really good Olympians Um, yeah exactly um Osaka is the kind of the, uh, and also, I mean, she's she is very much going to be the poster girl for this games, assuming she wins gold, and we can discuss how likely that is. But because they they lost Ichimura, the gymnast who is basically the best gymnast in the world, he didn't qualify for the high bar final, which is like his thing. Can't um, be the best then, can he? Sorry, can't be the best if he didn't qualify. Then what's the answer? I mean, that's quite that's quite reductive, <laughs> and I'm not going to bite on that particular little biscuit. Um, so yeah, they, they've kind of got fewer stars than I think they they might have done. Um, although they've got Kei Nishikori, by the way, let's not rule him out. Uh, but we should talk about, I guess, Osaka on the court for all that she's done off the court, uh, including releasing Netflix documentary, which I don't know if anyone has seen yet, but I have read a couple of quite scathing reviews. Um, so I think we might have to discuss that at length at some yeah. point. I, I had a scathing review for my housemate earlier as well, which. Right. Wasn't as scathing as some of some of the uh, snippets I've read on uh, Twitter as well, but <laughs> we, we should watch it and review it. It can be our next uh, Guillermo Vias. Yes, yeah, we should devote a bit more time to it than than just a few comments during a, a quite a newsy week. And in the women's draw, there has been plenty of news. The big one from the first day of action was Ash Barty going out to Sarah Soribes Tormo in straight sex six four six three. Uh, she's now through to the third round. By the way, she dispensed with. Um, Fiona Farrow in the second round as well. Uh, Heather Watson, Britain's Heather Watson, the only British entrant in the women's draw. She went out in the first round to Annalena Friedsam, uh, who I don't know a huge amount, I, I think I have to admit. Did and of course, Friedsam score in the next round. I think she was double breadsticked by Pavlia Jankova. So. She was indeed. Not a great result for Heather Watson. Uh, and kind of the worst result, or at least what seemed like the most draining result of all, uh, Iga Schwantek going down to Paolo Bedosa in the second round. Um, I saw uh, L'Equipe journalist Quentin Moyer uh, posting on Twitter a picture of Schwantek. She'd been sat in her chair with her towel over her head for 10 minutes after the match ended. Just completely, I, th- I guess, physically drained because it has been very hot in Tokyo, but also mentally drained. Um, which of those two upsets, George, both to Spanish women, Shrontek to Bedosa and Barty to Serebus Tormo. Which of those surprised you more? Probably, probably Barty. I mean, Bedosa, like Serebus Tormo has had a, a decent year on the tour and she, you know, she won her first title. She, I think she still holds the record for like the two of the longest three matches on the WTA tour this year. So she's winning a lot of like big, long, grindy matches. Um, but she hasn't really been producing like top level wins, whereas Bedosa has had good runs at big events, you know, semi final in Madrid, um, Roland Garros quarterfinals, um, had a few, you know, decent wins this year, and she's kind of comfortably a top thirty, probably pushing on top twenty and potentially beyond. Um, she's she's proven herself to be a pretty high level tour player. So I wasn't so surprised by that, particularly with Fiontech's form. Maybe dipping a little bit. I mean, since quite a strong start to the clay season, she's not really recaptured that magic. Um, so, yeah, definitely more surprised by Cerebus, Tormo and Barty. I, I suspect it's probably a bit of a case of burnout for Barty. You know, she spoke a lot 
after winning Wimbledon about how much of an effort it had been to get there. I think she described it as a miracle recovery. She had a two-month injury that she got back in a month. Um, so it might just have been a bridge too far for her. But yeah, I mean, we've spoken about it a bit before. It's a, it is a bit disappointing that we can't get like a Barty Osaka final or something at the minute. Because I, I think that's the match we all actually want to see on on these respective surfaces. Um, but yeah, I mean, looking pretty good for Osaka because they're, they're two of the players, along with Sabalenko, who's also gone out, who I would have thought would have a chance of beating her on a hard court at the minute. Mm. Um, Calvin, I suspect you, you'd be in a, in a similar boat, but do you see anyone in the, the women's draw? I mean, Garbina Muguruza is yeah. through in, in relatively simple fashion. I think she's dropped 13 games in two matches, which is basically nothing. Um, I mean, even with Osaka having been out for a couple of months, it, it feels like it's hers to lose. Yeah, I mean, Muguruza could cause trouble. They had a close, really close match at the Aussie Open, didn't they? Um, mm. Early this year, and but you just never know what you're getting with Muguruza. We spoke about it before. You know, it wouldn't surprise me at all if she won gold. Um, mm. But Osaka's got to be favourite. Um, it's all it's the years unraveling a bit for Svantec, isn't it? It's not really panning out as we thought. I mean, she's it's not like she's had a terrible year by any stretch, but I kind of thought she'd have won at least one of the slams this year so far, especially seeing as they've they've all opened up for her. Pretty much, maybe the Aussie hasn't, but the last two definitely opened up. Um, and this is, you know, Bedosa's a good player, but you'd think she'd beat her. But yeah, it's been a bit, it's been a bit flat, I think, for Svontek this year. Yeah, I mean, she started. She obviously started the year pretty well. I mean, she, she, I know after after the Australian Open, she went and won that title in Adelaide and, and beat a few decent players and basically battered them off the park. Um, and she won the title in Rome as well. So she beat, again, a couple of decent players on clay. So there's been a few decent results, but I guess on the biggest stage, she's kind of gone, well, not gone to pieces, but as you say, gone a bit flat. George, can you put your finger on why? I don't know. I mean, it's one of these tough ones, isn't it? I think you hear a lot of players talk about suddenly players start playing a lot better than you like when you're playing like a high ranked player there's suddenly kind of a bit of a target on your back I wonder if she's a bit of a victim of that you know when she won her French Open title last year while we'd all heard about it we knew she was a good player she was whatever you know outside the top 40 um possibly even further out I can't remember her ranking off the top of my head but well when she uh, won the French Open when she won the French she was 54 open, 54 there you go so outside the top 50 um so, you know, it was kind of low expectation there. And, and that slam did still open up quite a lot, uh, obviously. Mm. I I don't know. I mean, Sakari, you wouldn't say that's the worst loss in the world to the French? You know, she's, no, she's she's played well all year, to be fair. She lost to, who was it, on Jabour at Wimbledon? I mean, Jabour yeah. took out a few big names. I, I think this is the worst loss so far, I'd say. Um, not that I think... She's a bad player, Bedosa, at all. I just think on a hard court, you'd expect Sviontek to be winning that match at the minute. Um, mm. If it was clay, even though Sviontek's great on clay, I kind of I think Bedosa's level is that much higher that I could see that happening um, on occasion. But I, I thought she'd have her on a hard court pretty comfortably. Is that a game style thing? I mean, this is this is very much as a, a layman when it comes to tactician and balls. Um, but is it is it Calvin that she is someone who, because of the way she plays? will have fluctuations in her form? Um, no, I don't think it's that, because I think the, the thing is with her, she's such a complete player. Mm. It's not like she has big weapons, and you can see there be ups and downs. Pretty much all, every part of her game is is elite level. Um, so that's what I find so strange about it, that it's not like she can... I, don't, I think it's quite the opposite. I don't think she, she would come across players who cause her particular problems. Mm. Um, it's just something that's not quite quite right. I mean, I know they made some changes to their team. They brought in some people at the start of the season. Um, and you've got to sort of question whether they needed to do that. She was in a good spot, wasn't she? Mm. Yeah, very interesting. I, I wonder if it's one of those things where a news story might come out in six or 12 months' time and we go, ah, okay, this is starting to make a bit more sense, but um, kind of difficult to, to speculate beyond that. Um, but well, I mean, I think we'd all like to see her back playing well. That's that's for sure because women's tennis needs as many people playing well and consistently well as possible. Uh, the top half of the draw, as I mentioned, there is wide open now. There, it's just 
There are no top five seeds left in the top half of the draw now that Sabalenka and Barty are out. Um, Muguruza, Bencic and Krajikova are the, the top ranked players in the top half, all of whom could play Naomi Osaka in the final. I guess her biggest challenge maybe is going to be Karina Pliskova, who has played some decent tennis in places this year and, and could maybe do something. She came through Elise Cornet and Carla Suarez Navarro to reach the third round and still has to beat Camille Georgie. Yeah, I, I see. I agree with Calvin on Muguruza. You have to say Krajikova is the other one who's the biggest threat to Osaka on current form. She's played well across every surface. Um, she's doing a lot of damage. She's confident. She's shown she can win big matches even when she's kind of looking quite down and out. Um, I think Osaka should beat her on paper, but she's playing well enough and got enough confidence to kind of spring the shock there as well. I mean, I think the thing that's really going to come down to is, to an extent, fitness. It, because the conditions are, as far as I can tell, absolutely brutal. They use something called, is it called the wet bulb meter or the wet bulb um, scale, which basically is a combination, as far as I can tell, of heat and humidity. Um, it's like what Channel 9 used to call the player, player comfort meter, um, where they used to measure how uncomfortable it was for players. And that dictates that whether they use the heat rule or not and allow players longer breaks and things. And they have the wet bulb meter immediately went off. The minute they started play on the first day in Tokyo, they went, right, OK, well, we need to use the heat rule because it's been above 30 degrees. It's been extremely humid. And they've been playing, and Novak Djokovic and Dion Medvedev have both complained about this. They've been playing in the middle of the day. And I assume it's because of time zones and to hit the right areas on TV. But they, you know, they've been done and dusted by five or six o'clock local time every day. And, and they have floodlights on all these courts. They could be playing outdoor, um, outdoors but under floodlights in the evening. And they're not. It seems ludicrous, George. Yeah, it's, it's very unusual for tennis tournaments, really, where they kind of start and obviously have a few matches on around 11 or 12, but you're expecting, you kind of almost build up to a night session at most big mm. tournaments because you put your, your biggest name on early in the night. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely testing conditions. Um, I still think most of them are pretty used to playing. They've had experience of playing pretty tough conditions elsewhere so I, I wouldn't expect that I know Novak has occasionally kind of complained about conditions and says it's really difficult but he's also proven time time again he can find he's very good in the heat <laughs> yes yeah so I wouldn't yeah. worry too much um just just on Osaka and in terms of winning it I think aside from the players themselves who can beat her it will be interesting to see if she I, I do think the significance of this title will feel pretty heavy on her shoulders towards the end and we we saw She's that. very nervous. She's talked about how nervous she is about this tournament. We saw that a bit again. Um, we spoke about it a bit with about Novak at Wimbledon, you know, when this sort of history and certain significance of certain places and results. And I think of Olympics where you've lit the cauldron, the poster girl, it's okay the first few rounds, but I, I think it'll be very interesting if she gets herself into a tight match, if she can find her best tennis in that moment. And there's no reason to doubt that on a hard court typically. She's very, very good. Um, however, I, I do think there's an extra bit of pressure. And the other thing I'd say is that certain players, I think someone like a Sakari as well, who's playing for a country that doesn't necessarily have amazing Olympic representation typically, could could just like ignite. You know, you never yeah. quite know what it's going to do to certain players. I mean, Sakari's great anyway. She's a really tough player. It wouldn't be an easy match, but she's just someone who could suddenly go on it. I mean, even like Camilla Georgi, I don't think she's going to win it, but you look at her results previously and then turning up here, just shows what kind of random things like the Olympics can be in terms of certain players who just get it and want it and they're desperate and there's like a fire ignited. Um, so I kind of see Sakari in that mould as well, but tough one. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right to point out Greece's lack of history in the Olympics. <laughs> they invented the damn thing. Yeah, yeah very, very true. But you know what I mean, I'm, uh, yes, I do. It's just too good an excuse. Um, let's move no, on. I don't like the Olympics, James. So. Right, okay, yeah, we get it. We get it. Uh, let's move on to the men's draw where um, I've actually had the chance. The, amazingly, I kind of assumed, because I've been working on the desk this week and the Olympics are the Olympics, I've watched no tennis, and I've actually managed to watch quite a bit, um, mostly of Novak Djokovic, which is a bit of a shame because he hasn't really had much competition. Um, he, he beat Hugo Delian, the Bolivian two and two in the first round in a classic in the genre of a bloke who's just glad to be there. He literally asked for Djokovic's shirt at the net afterwards, which 
Uh, Calvin, I know you'll have strong thoughts on. Um, yeah, nonsense. Absolutely. <laughs> Entirely embarrassing. I mean, it was the first time he'd ever played him. Um, and I guess it probably was a big deal back in Bolivia. Uh, and Hugo Delian, it should be noted, is a proper, proper clay court specialist. I was looking at his record in the run-up to the match. I don't think there is a more of a clay court specialist going. I have some sympathy with Delian in this regard. I think to make it as a tennis player from Bolivia is in itself pretty crazy. Like, there's is a really, really poor country in South America. Like, getting the chance to play someone like Novak is pretty crazy for Bolivia. I can't name a single other Bolivian tennis player off the top of my head. But, um, you know, to even get there, I, I have more sympathy with him than, say, it was Corda, wasn't it, who had the cat? Yeah. Um, you know, I have less sympathy than that in the kind of, you know, you're from the US, mate. Come on, like loads of your people from your country. Whereas somewhere like Bolivia, it's so, it's crazy. He's even at that level, really, given mm. the lack of opportunity. So I have a little, a smidge more sympathy, even though I'm typically in Calvin's camp of being grumpy about this. Just get it in the changing rooms after. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's not like he's like, won't be around him. He's around the guy every week. He'll know him. Like they'll talk. I, I think it's a bit like, no, nah, not for me. <laughs> not, not for me, Clive, says Calvin. Uh, but in the second round, he had um, someone who was much more familiar with him. Jan Leonard Struve must be absolutely sick of the sight of Novak Djokovic. He drew him at the Australian Open last year. He drew him at the Cincinnati Masters. He drew him at the US Open and, uh, and at the French Open this year. Uh, he got the sum total of one set off him, and he certainly didn't manage that much this time. I think uh, it's one of the crazy thing about Novak at the minute. I mean, Struff is a nightmare draw first and second rounds for most players. Like, I think if yeah. you genuinely met him four times over the year, you'd expect to lose. Well, you wouldn't expect to lose, but I think most top players would fall foul and lose at least once or twice. And Novak just keeps making light work. And I, I caught a bit of that match earlier in between covering, was I covering uh, some people hanging off rings and some people <laughs> diving off the planks. Um they were very good. Well done, Britain. But, uh, yeah, get on with it, George. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, Djokovic just—it's just so good at dismantling people at the minute, isn't it? I mean, well, by the second set, Struve was serving volleying, which kind of tells you, like, which was just desperation, as far as I can tell, because a you're not going to get anywhere serving volleying against Djokovic anyway, and b Jan Leonard Struve certainly isn't going to get anywhere. Frankly, he should be quite pleased he got to 6-4 in the first set because that's more than he's managed in the last three meetings. <laughs> yeah, I think like the seven volley thing is something I quite often want players to do more, but it's still something you shouldn't be doing every point unless that's absolutely like your Maxime Cressy and that's your game style. It's yeah. definitely like one in four points to try and change it up or something. But yeah, um, it, it was pretty effective from Djokovic who I'd be very surprised if he wasn't in the final given... Well, I'd be surprised either way, but given the other players around him who potentially could have done a bit of damage, like a Rublev who's just random, could hit through, even though I didn't think he'd beat Djokovic. Um, he's gone, isn't he? So, Yeah, Rublev beaten in straight sets by Kane Ishikori. Calvin, is that just a, one of those, you know, Olympic adrenaline, or is this Rublev getting undone in a skillful match again? Uh, yeah, probably a bit of that. And Ishikori, you know, in one-off matches, Ishikori's a, a, an elite-level tennis player. Let's yeah. not forget whether he can still do it to the extent day in day out at Grand Slams is a different matter. But in terms of best of three at an Olympics in his own country, no, that's not a good draw for anybody. Mm. Yeah, and he uh, could face Novak Djokovic in the fourth round, and I would actually expect him to because he's got a pretty he's opened up that draw really well. It was already quite tasty, and he's now on on Rublev's draw. He's got um, Marcus Hiron of the USA, uh, and then either. He beats him, Ilya Ivashka or Mikhail Kukushkin, uh, both of which will be, well, they'll be well incentivized for wins at the Olympics by their own host nations, but I don't see them beating Kane Ishikori. Um, there was a good win that we should talk about uh, for Liam Brody. He was, of course, uh, a late call-up after Dan Evans caught COVID. He is the lowest-ranked player in the men's draw uh, because he's in as a late replacement. Uh, he played the Argentinian Cherundolo, Francisco Cherundolo, I don't know whether he's the better one or the worst one. I can't remember now. Um, but either way, uh, Liam beat him in three sets in some pretty grueling conditions. I guess, uh, Calvin, I know you know Bros quite well. I mean, just nice to see a guy who's so pleased just to be at the Olympics to then go out and do something for his country like that. 
Yeah, because I think he's he's had a few, hasn't he, where he's he's qualified for a few big events and that kind of thing, and kind of lost first round or something like that. And but yeah, it's definitely. I mean, it was a nice draw for him because although Cherundolo was was higher ranks, Broads would definitely have fancied his chances against anybody sort of between one fifty and one hundred. He'd, he'd fancy taking them, and yeah, you know, it's he's. He, I'm over the moon for him. He's a great guy, great lad, um, and he loved being there. And um, hopefully, he can carry it on. Hopefully, and then hopefully, he can carry that form into the US swing. Yeah, I was going to say like, there's obviously no prize money in the Olympics, and there's no ranking points. So to an extent, you know, these guys who are never expecting to go past the third round or, or whatever, you know, they're just there because it's great to be part of the Olympics, but. Is there an ex- an extent to which you can say this is something you can use, you know, to leverage things like sponsorship or, or create a bit more profile? Or is, is there anything you can get out of this? Yeah, totally. And I think it's West, especially at, at Broads' level, that sort of one fifty to one hundred level, that any kind of momentum you get is like gold dust. It can take you up there, winning matches. It's it's still a big tournament. Let's yeah. not get it wrong. It's a big event, and winning matches at big events will always get you some momentum and confidence. I was just going to say, there was a, quite a humorous story about him on Instagram. And I don't know if you saw Andy Murray's Instagram earlier where he shared some... I can't remember the sport they were come from, but uh, t- two uh, ladies had put a picture up saying uh, they'd had a selfie with Andy Murray and then this other random Brit had just run off and refused to be <laughs> involved in the <laughs> And Murray later outed it as Brody, so <laughs> run off the sport as well. That's very funny. I mean, it's not, it's, I find it hard to believe it's not like Broads to turn down an opportunity to have a picture taken of himself. <laughs> well, he probably had a shirt on. That was the problem. Yeah, I was right? just going to say, yeah, he probably had a shirt on, so I wasn't comfortable having the picture taken. Um, I, I saw um, on some sort of social media just after Wimbledon, because basically I ended up sat behind Jez Green um, for a couple of matches at Wimbledon and then saw that he was or had done a few sessions with, with Broads. I don't know whether you can shed any light on that, Calvin. That's not a long-term thing, is it? Or I, mean, I don't know what they've been doing, but Jez is um, a long-term friend of Dave Samuel. They used right. to run an academy together uh, yeah. in Monte Carlo, um, and basically Dave gave Jez his first job in tennis. So they're obviously close, and I assume it's just connected to that, really. Well, yeah. it will be connected through that. And they'll just know each other as well. Jez will know... Actually, Jez as well also used to work at the Leeds National Academy uh, where definitely Naomi trained and I mm-hmm. think Bro- Liam probably went in and did some sessions. So they'll know each other from 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Do you think that's an area... I mean, I don't want to get bogged down in Liam Brody too much because we've got a lot of other stuff to talk to you about, but is that... We've, he's talked a lot about rededicating himself to tennis. It, it, does he mean living the life, doing the physical stuff, doing the hard yakka? Well, Broads has always been very fit. He, he always talks about this, and it always baffles me a bit how he always talks about getting his fitness up. But he's in phenomenal shape. He always is. Mm. It's not that. And I don't think I, I, he's never struck me as anybody who's unprofessional. He gives himself a bit of a hard time about that, but he, he's he's professional. I my issue with Broads, I just wish he'd have a bit more belief in himself. Yeah. But in terms of getting the work done, he tries new things. He tries different um, different ways to do things a lot, and He's, he's experimental in his methods, but yeah, I always think he's in, he's in really good shape. Very good. Um, let's talk about someone else who's always in very good shape, although not necessarily when it comes to injury. Uh, Andy Murray was one of the big news stories over the last couple of days uh, because he withdrew from the singles of the Olympics. Maybe, maybe the only, I, I don't know if at other tournaments you can get away with withdrawing only from the singles and not from the doubles. Um, he cited a thigh injury that he said the medics had basically told him he shouldn't be playing singles on. However, he is fit enough to play doubles. He's into the second round as well, him and Joe Salisbury. Uh, they, I would suggest, pulled off a bit of an upset, being beating uh, Pierre Hugues Herbert and Nicolas Mahu in the first round, um, albeit both very capable doubles players, the Brits as well. Uh, George, this is I, I can't remember someone pulling out of singles to save their doubles chances. Do you think this is a pragmatic decision rather than actually a medical one? Yeah, I, th- I think there's a mix of it being kind of pragmatic in terms of chances of winning a medal, but also probably not wanting to let Joe down. Mm. <laughs> I think Andy, if you hear a lot about his team and stuff, like he's often worrying about what his actions will do to other people. I think in his heart of hearts, he probably knew 
to be very tough for him to to win singles, particularly if he's got a slight niggle, whatever it is. Um, but he wouldn't want to, you know, pull Joe out. And Joe obviously is like one of the world's best doubles players, has a really good chance of doing well at this tournament. I mean, the and you know, obviously with Contra already pulling out, his chances of getting in the mixed were pretty uh, pretty close. I think he might just sneak in with Heather Watson, um, although it's not yet confirmed. There's been a sort of slapdash entry list release, which I'm not sure is the full thing just yet. Um, but you know, it would have been a real shame for Joe if he <laughs> had to pull out the men's doubles and not get a place in the mix. That would have been a bit of a disaster. So, yeah, uh, I think it's probably a smart move from Murray on that side of things. If if this isn't that serious an issue, injury, which I guess we'll find out with the uh, test of time, they, they've definitely got a good chance. We said that before, you know, Murray's an excellent doubles player, but everything in his game needed to be good at doubles, and Salisbury is genuinely one of the best in the world, as we all know. You know, he's going gone from strength to strength and won big titles and puts himself in position to win big titles. So I've there's no, they may well be out by the time you listen to this, because they're playing quite early in the morning tomorrow, but it's avoiding any slip-ups tomorrow. I don't see why they couldn't really be hammering on the door of at least a bronze, and who knows from there. Yeah, I, I, as you say, George, I'm hesitant to, to be too bold because I may already be wrong as you hear me say this. But, I mean, I think they've got an excellent chance of winning a medal. Um, the Mektic and Pavic, the Croatian pair, are red-hot favourites, although they got out of trouble against the Italians today, by the way, who took them to a deciding uh, tie-break, Musetti and Senego. Um, and there are a few pretty strong pairs in there. Not the other British pair, Jamie Murray and Neil Skupski lost to uh, Kei Nishikori and Brandon McLachlan, the Japanese pair, which sounds like not a great result on paper or, frankly, on hard court. On um, any surface. No, no big shock, really. Um, I mean, that, we're talking about people digging themselves out of trouble. They, those two really wriggled out of a hole in that first round against uh, Zabaios and Molteni and... You kind of thought that was you know, perhaps the moment Jamie needed to kind of spring himself on in these Olympics because he's never really had uh, great results. But I don't know. I mean, that, that, that I suppose you can put that down to what we were talking about earlier, can't you? you know, home country or you know another smaller nation perhaps just being inspired by the chance to really go for it. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to really dress that up as anything other than a pretty disappointing result mm. against a, a scratch pairing who... I wouldn't look at either of those guys and think on paper they're amazing doubles players, really. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wouldn't want... Uh, Jamie, I know, wouldn't want to offer excuses, but, of course, he wasn't part of the Olympic squad until quite recently, until Dan got COVID. I mean, that didn't stop Liam Brody winning his first-round match, so um, I don't know how much of an excuse that may be. And he's played with Skatsky before, hasn't he? I mean, it's not like... Yeah. It's not like it was a total scratch arrival. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's difficult to dress up as other than pretty disappointing but you know a lot of Jamie's results the last year have been pretty disappointing really haven't they agreed um let's have some British success shall we uh, I'll magic it up because Cam Norrie uh, has won his first ATP title a well-deserved I mean he's now 12th in the ATP race to Turin as it is now he's had a terrific year he beat Elias Ema, Escobedo, Taylor Fritz uh, and Brandon Nakashima. I mean, he absolutely dominated all four matches as well. He went to a tiebreak in the opening round, and then I don't think was taken past 6-3 in a single one of his sets uh, on his way to the title. Uh, Calvin, this is, this is... I don't like to say he's deserved this title because if you win the title, you deserve it. But for what he's done this year, this has almost felt like it's been coming, hasn't it? Yeah, he's been... He's been the best player outside the top 20 this year. I think it's fair to say. Uh, well, that's not even an opinion, is it? He's just won more matches than anyone else. So yeah. outside of those guys who you would think will compete at the quarterfinals of the slams, you'd think he's probably been the best player of that second tier down, um, sort of winning the championship, if you will, um, outside of the Premier League. So, um, yeah, he's, he's he's played well. He's tough to beat. If he's if he's full of confidence, he's got, got an underrated serve. He's got a big mm -hmm. serve, and I think it's only since he got the top 100 his serve hasn't been so dominant. But in challenges, I know the word was that he was just holding serve all the time. Players couldn't get near his serve, um, and then he doesn't miss. He's quite a unique player in that regard, actually. He's, he's got a big serve and then just makes a lot of balls, um, and he's lefty. 
he's got that weird sort of slice drive backhand that he does, um, and he's tough to beat. Yeah, I, I mean, it's been an amazing. I mean, it's crazy to think he's kind of on the cusp of top ten in terms of results this year. I mean, just would not have called that um, even close at the start of last year. And we spoke, we've spoken at length a little bit about was he right to skip the Olympics? Was he not? But he's kind of just pretty much picked up 250 ranking points straight away off the bat. Got himself into another really good position in the ranking. Yeah, you have to say it looks quite justified at the moment, I'd say. I mean, it's always tough to say in a parallel universe, like, would he have just had a big drive and got a medal? But for where he's at and what he wants to achieve, I mean, do we think, uh, is it too much to ask for a, a top eight spot in the, uh, what's it called? In what, you order to, to get to the race? I mean... It kind of snowballs, doesn't it? Because he's now almost certainly going to be seeded at the US Open. It would actually be it would actually take quite a lot for him not to be seeded at this point, because uh, I know he's playing in Atlanta next week as well. So he'll pick up a few more points where a lot of people won't be picking up any points. Um, so he will almost certainly be seeded at the US Open. That gives him a very good chance of making the third round. I mean, I'm I can't remember exactly if he's defending many points at the US Open. I suspect he is. Got third because- round. Or did he lose first round? But uh, third round last year, yeah. So he's he's defending third round points. Um, so he, I guess, he will need to get to the third round. But yeah, I mean, as Calvin says, he's won a lot of matches this year. I know he's played a lot of tournaments as well. I was looking at the list of people who won the most matches this year, and he's also like lost the most matches of people this year because obviously he's played, I think, fifteen or sixteen tournaments already. Um, George, we've often talked about his ceiling, and I don't want to ask that question again, but I wonder what you think his biggest result could be. Like, I don't think he's going to go out and beat a Djokovic or a Medvedev or a Tsitsipas on hardcore, but could he beat people, you know, in that second tier? I, I was just going to say, actually, I think the the next step is obviously second week of the slam, fourth round and beyond. But to be fair to him... <laughs> Pretty much all his third round appearances have been pretty poor draws in terms of like playing a Rafa or a Roger. Um, so I suppose a kind of draw in that regard is the next step. But I think perhaps the other question you we were kind of like driving at there is if he was to draw one of those players in the third round in that second tier, would they be in the third round necessarily? Would they actually make it? I mean, that's the problem with the players, the draws he's had. He's always playing players you know we're going to get to the third round and Norrie as good as he's been and you might have said uh, some someone remarked they thought he was kind of a bit disappointing against Federer given Federer's condition and maybe could have gone through him but you know still beating Federer on grass is quite a, a tough thing to kind of imagine in your head if you've not seen it when it happened too often before so yeah I, I don't I, I think he could he could easily have like a quarterfinal of the US Open if the draw opened up. I just don't see him winning those biggest matches against the best players in the deeper rounds of the slams. But if he carries on like he is and gets a run in a slam, he's got a really good chance of perhaps being like an alternate in London. Um, you have to remember as well, the one thing that will count against him in that kind of race to Turin is that it's a limited number of events that can count for you. So while he's building up a lot of points, he can only use like 18 of them. So he's already kind of at that threshold. So he, he does need some bigger results, shall we say, at like Masters or whatever. But he's going very well. This is where the seeding uh, could work against him, actually, where George is saying trying to get to a third round is that I think, I don't know the exact rules, but I think if you're seeded somewhere between 32 and 26 or 24, then you have to get one of the top eight in the third round mm. um, so it's almost would be better for him if he wasn't seeded because he knows he's going to have a stinker in, in the third round uh, it's, yeah, where, like, it's where um, um, Dan Evans has been hit badly this year as well although hasn't sometimes he's done if he's got there actually but um, it's not helped him in that regard yeah yeah it's a weird thing with draws isn't it I mean to a certain extent um I would be all in favour of basically completely, either completely dismantling the seeding system. Because when you actually think about it, these draws are rigged, right? Like, that's actually what 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 tennis draws are. They are genuinely rigged so that the best players get to go furthest. I mean, I, I would not be against, like, one of the slams, say. Huh? FA Cup style draw. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, can you imagine? 
I think it'll be really exciting. The other I, thing, I, I don't think there was any need to go past 16. I don't know why they stopped doing the 16. Because if even if you're sort of, you know, if you're Djokovic, you, you wouldn't want to be playing someone like, yeah, even Cam Norrie, or even if, say, you're Rublev, you don't want to be playing Cam Norrie or Dan Evans first round. Yeah. That, that's not one. But now they know that they're going to have somebody who they, in theory, should be Batter. pretty comfortable against. And it's made the first week of slams pretty boring, I think. Yeah, I agree. The other thing I would like to see introduced is like actually uh, well, as a bit more logistically difficult in tennis given the time turnaround. But I'd absolutely love like a complete random draw. So you draw them out the hat, kind of kind of like the FA Cup, but don't see the draw. So you just actually just pull. Oh, so every hat. round is every random. Round. So you have no, like, I love that. kind of a new draw every two days. I think that'd be great fun. Like love one, that one of the tournaments. I don't see why it would be that much of a problem either. Like from a scheduling perspective, I think we're into the stage where there's been, there was a bit of a debate last week with um, I got in on it myself and Mark Petchy about ways that they could that tennis could be made more interesting. If you look at all the different ways that cricket have done it with different scoring systems, different systems on how teams go through and that kind of thing, it seems that tennis is kind of a bit stuck in. We do first to six game sets and we do best of three or best of five and we seed everybody and nothing changes. It, it's no different week in week out where i don't see why you couldn't have like maybe say one of the 250s or maybe the 250 events are first to four game uh, first to four game sets and best of five um or maybe one of them like you say they do the draw like that uh where it's drawn out of a hat and, and honestly from a promotional side of things having like seen viewing figures for websites stuff, people go mad for these draws honestly oh yeah people love a draw people actually, like a, <laughs> love a draw it's actually a real disadvantage not having them like every two days can you just imagine like you finish the second day and then you pull Federer and Djokovic out of the hat the next day like there's suddenly the massive build-up that comes with that match whereas like now it's like you're preempting it and then if it doesn't happen you feel quite flat but if it yeah. has to happen that next day I, I think be a lot of fun that's my actually it's a good point point you make there calvin as well like tennis really in terms of innovation like and we talk a lot about innovation in tennis and usually in connection with the name patrick maritoglu and i don't want us to get involved in his sort of nonsense but actually when you think about what other sports have done in terms of innovation the only thing tennis has done is introduce hawkeye that's the only thing really in the last what's that shot clock i would say is another one yeah, I suppose so, but that doesn't really change anything, does it? That just enforces the rule. It's actually made it longer as well because people. Are yeah. And the, the not... tiebreak, the tiebreak system was tiebreak was one. Well, when 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 did the tiebreak system come mid-7, in? Seven, like early to mid seventies, I think. <laughs> great, great, good recent innovation that one. I mean, but well, when the, you watch the thing, the thing is that I think with tennis, the problem, and, and I'm not saying I still think the slam should be best of five, first to six. Although I do think there should be a tiebreak at six all in all of them. Yeah. Um, I don't get what difference 12 all makes six all. Um, but I think some of the other events, the problem is, even in those events and in tennis, if you, if your attention's, if you're not really into tennis, you watch the end of the first set and then there's usually this sort of four to five game dead spell at the start of the second set where it's like one all, two all, three yeah. all, where nothing's really happening. Where you go best to first to four. Every game is important. You can't mm. you can't have a five minute spell where you're a bit sloppy. Yeah, yeah, that that is a problem, isn't it? And they talk in other sports a lot about killing like dead bits of game, and and like I think that actually you need in long form sport. I think there is a place for long form sport, like scrums in rugby union. They're not very exciting to watch, but they're actually they're really contributing to how the rest of the game evolves. And similarly, I sort of think about some of those dead games in tennis. But I, I think, though, that in terms of like we get obsessed with time, I think, and like that doesn't really calculate in, in the real world. Because you look at like in America, NFL and NBA are the most drawn out sports time wise. Like the mm. NBA, the, the, last, the last 90 seconds in an NBA match can last 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, because there's about eight timeouts. So, so it's not time that's the problem. It's keeping people interested when it's going on, I think, yeah. combined with time. I actually don't mind the whole like there being dead space in the start of a set because I think actually there's, there's something to be said for like people watching over like when a slams on just like doing certain activities going out the room coming back. Oh, in. my mum does it. My mum like goes I, and makes I, I, a cup I, I, of tea I, at the beginning of the set and like has that. a potter. Yeah, I, I, I think I don't know. It doesn't bother me 
that much of the time. For look, me. I mean, look, George, I'm a Test cricket fan. Like, I love dead time in games. Like, I'm like, I'm just basically gonna get behind that. But I just think that when people think about sports, that's what what they think about. Um, I want to just brush over a couple other other results because I know we've got a little bit more of a debate to have a little bit later on. Um, should be noticed that Carlos Alcaraz uh, won his first ATP title. Remember the name. Remember the time. Uh, he's younger than Murray when he won his first title. I think only just older than Rafa Nadal. I think he's still 18 years old. Um, he's going to go up to 54, and was already up to 54 in the world, uh, which is his new career high. Probably be top 30 by the end of the year. We've talked a lot about him before and how much how much we think of him. But um, certainly, if you don't already know lots about Carlos Alcaraz, please go and find out more because you'll find my interview with his coach. Casper um, Ruud won his third clay court title of the season. He's a man who certainly thinks that he is going far in the game, even if other people don't necessarily agree. Um, he's got the most wins on clay. I, I, I do want to have a conversation about this clay court swing because I know that Nick Kyrgios has been talking about it. Uh, and I know Calvin, basically, he's sort of his thought leader. Um, but we'll maybe just delay that, if you don't mind, uh, for a week so that we can have a bit more space over it. Um, wins for Daniel Collins and uh, Zanievska as well, um, but not really at a huge level because it is actually a decent tournament in Japan. Um, but moving on to something that Calvin happened upon on Twitter and lots of other tennis people seized upon, um, the Athletics football writer Michael Cox, also known as Zonal Marking, um, wrote an article this week basically claiming that Lionel Messi is the best player of any sport uh, in any kind of context. Uh, so I, And essentially, everyone who is a fan of other sports jumped on and went, how dare you have a go at my sport? Uh, and felt very attacked by the whole thing. It's because Calvin's a bit insecure, I think that's basically it. But, um, I mean, Calvin, I mean, look, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will lay out for people who haven't read it or don't have an athletic subscription um, what, what what he was saying. And basically his point was, in a kind of classically long athletic way, that football is the best meritocracy in sport, which I think is probably right, because it, it has no barriers to market. It has quite an efficient market in terms of getting talent from base level to elite level. He reckons that the gulf between amateur and pro sport in football is bigger than any other. Um, and I thought his sign-off, uh, which is kind of the reason he wrote it, was I can't help thinking we'd all appreciate top-flight football more if we regularly thought about how good these players are. Um, he's, so I guess his salient point was footballers are really good, aren't they? Uh, and that elite football is better than any other sport. Calvin, what wound you up about that? Um for starters, he's one of this group of journalists who don't seem to... Not only do they not write about any other sport other than football, they seem to have no interest in anything else other than football. So I don't think he's really in a position to be saying that. But specifically, it's this, I mean, football is football's actually probably my favourite sport, uh, even more than tennis, even though I work in tennis. But I, I don't see him specifically on Lionel Messi. It, it's just not logical to say he's better at football than... Novak Djokovic is at tennis. Like Lionel Messi hasn't won a Champions League in over a decade. Like his team have been pretty rubbish for the last sort of four or five years comparatively to where they should be. Novak, they're about the same age. Novak Djokovic start, started winning before Lionel Messi did, and he's still winning now. And yet Messi is phenomenal. There's no doubt about it. But at no stage has anybody been able to say that Messi is definitely the best footballer in the world right now. He's had one pretty big um, rivalry, obviously, with Ronaldo, and nobody can settle on where they are. And up until two weeks ago, it was generally recognised that Ronaldo had done more in the game than Messi had. Whereas Djokovic regularly competes against not only his biggest rivals, but probably the other two best players that have ever played the game. And he beats them nearly all the time in the biggest tournaments. It, 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 if you... Like I keep coming to, I always say that Djokovic is the best big match player of any sport ever. And if you had to do, if you had to pick someone to play their sport against their biggest rival to save your life, you'd choose Djokovic to play tennis. There's no, there's no doubt about it. You wouldn't choose Messi to play football because he could be for Argentina and he'd definitely lose. <laughs> I, th I think there's a few kind of like logical holes in what he said. I mean, like if you take, if you break it down and kind of like. 
the perspective of his argument is basically because you have more people to start, that means the person you end up with is definitely the best. Um, that just doesn't follow to my mind. Like that doesn't. It, it creates a, a higher statistical probability that the person at the top is the best. I mean, if you but have, actually, when you, you pick the individual, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. If you again, if it's like it's kind of like saying if you have two parallel straight lines, they're more likely to meet if you have more time for them to meet. That doesn't make mm -hmm. sense because they're permanently parallel. Like, you know, there's certain things that actually don't logically follow, and that that's definitely one of them. Like someone kind of sarcastically pointed out to him that uh, if you followed his logic, then actually walking would be the toughest sport to be the best at because we all walk all the time. Like that doesn't make sense. Is it? I know we don't do walking as a sport, but we all walk. Uh, we do. Tom Boswell is the British <laughs> champion. He's excellent. <laughs> I mean, so this actually, no, I'm, no, I'm not going to get stuck on race walking. Yeah, let's not Try and stay focused. Let's not get distracted. Um, the, other, the other thing that just doesn't make sense to me is the comparison between an individual and team sport i mean like even when messi's won major titles and stuff he's, he's still requiring 10 other blokes to kind of come with him and you actually see messi's careers since barcelona lost like the javi and iniesta and even carlos Puyol to a degree like that barcelona team kind of significantly weakened um you know djokovic never has that you know djokovic has to play on his own all the time and consistently be that good. There's no one he can sub on. There's no, not that Messi subbed off very often, but you see Messi walking around in some clips where he looks like he couldn't be bothered. Um, mm. Djokovic couldn't do that. He has to run to every single ball. I mean, it's a very difficult thing. And he kind of concedes at one point where he goes, oh, oh yeah, you can't compare individual team sports to individuals, but still makes the claim that Messi is clearly better in his sport than Djokovic is in his. I really don't understand that argument. And my final thing, I'd just say, he's actually right about stuff like cricket and rugby in a degree of limited number of big countries you play. And that's the kind of team sport comparison. I think that's a fair argument. But if you look at the, he, he dismisses tennis as being just a wealthy sport. Like, okay, so where's the US player in the top 20 in the men's game now? Where's the Chinese player in the top 20 of the US now? Yes, there's a slight barrier to it. But actually, if you look at the nations who are in that top 20, you've got Chile. We just spoke about Hugo Delian being a kind of top 100 player from Bolivia. You know, it is possible to excel quite far reaching globally. Not as easy as in football, I'll grant you that. Because um, as you said, there's a bigger kind of particle pathway. But tennis is actually one of those sports that is watched in so many different countries and it is possible to break through. And as an individual, you have to get there yourself. You can't be part of a good team and then kind of not fluke your way up, but be carried and then go on to a big transfer and be kind of found out the highest level you have to do it yourself so yeah i mean it's it's a bit of a pointless debate in some ways because it's kind of hard to say is Djokovic better than messi I, I mean i don't know the answer to that but to dismiss it out of hand i just find remarkable really you you can't uh, as, as well Djokovic is from serbia like where's serbia on the rich list <laughs> <laughs> it's like but but also like even if we don't go even if we don't go like to individual sports, like is, is is Lionel Messi better at football than Michael Jordan was at, at basketball? Like we, we we saying that? Can we say that with any great confidence? Okay. And as my mate pointed out yesterday, in another team sport, like if you want to go statistically, Don Bradman is so far better than any other sportsman statistically. He averaged ninety nine. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, for people who don't understand cricket, Don Don Bradman's average score was 99 the next highest test average in history is 62 he is 50 percent better than anyone in history of his sport i mean it, so i often say when people say who's the greatest of all time that it's not a helpful word you're better off saying who's the most dominant sports person of all time because it, it kind of stops you comparing between eras because you can only compare people to people in their own era really and it's about who is like the furthest distance i mean ahead of the people of their time. I mean, no one in Bradman's era was even averaging like 40, never mind 99 as he did. Um, I, I just want to pick you up on a couple of things there, George, because earlier you said that it was remarkable that Hugo Delian came from Bolivia to become a professional tennis player yeah. because it's so hard to become a professional tennis player from a poor country. I just meant in terms of like the complete lack of infrastructure there, but people do still do it. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of making... So it, is so, so, so it is harder to be a it tennis player from a country. It is, it is, yeah, definitely harder. 
but it's not impossible. And particularly when you're kind of trying to be a single individual coming through, I, I, I agree with that kind of broad point. But what I'm saying is, you know, the idea that only rich people make it is actually kind of demonstrably untrue. Like you get a lot of very scrappy people who make it at the top because they're fighting for their lives in many ways. Or... So, so I, what I would say is that at the very top, like in the, this very small sample size, you're going to have lots of different anomalies, I guess. But if you think about the kind of upper echelons, like the sort of upper middle, if you think about this country and maybe take the top 30 tennis players in this country in men's and women's, Calvin, you'll know them much better than me. But my instinct from what you often say is that there are a lot of kids there with rich parents. Oh, 100%. But I think that part of that, though, is because of the infrastructure of British tennis. But as I've said before, you will get to a stage in Britain where you need to travel. And if you don't have the money to travel, then you will hit a plateau. But that's not necessarily the situation in France or in Serbia or Italy. There's national tournaments spread around that you can play at. And so I think that that's fair to say. But um, yeah, also, like, we're moving off tennis here. But like, I don't understand what the point of his of his whole article was. Was it that we don't think footballers are very good? Who doesn't think Lionel Messi's good at football? Who doesn't <laughs> think that Mbappe is good at football? Like, who comes off and thinks like that was average? Like, it's just such a nonsense. Like, I I think um, his point was. I mean, I'll read you his last paragraph. I don't know if this is copyright um, breach. I don't think it is. Uh, perhaps this is a result of me being a season ticket holder at a seventh tier club and realizing how far down the pyramid you can genuinely find quality. But I'm genuinely irritated every time it's implied that a Premier League footballer is anything short of an elite athlete. I realize that if a corner doesn't kill the first man, the fan shouting that the culprit is useless doesn't um, is not attempting to provide a comprehensive analysis of ability. But I can't help thinking we'd appreciate all top flight football more if we regularly thought about how good these players are. I mean, I, I guess like that point could be applied to tennis as well, right? Like you go and watch like Challenger second round and you think, well, these guys aren't very good because they're not Djokovic versus Federer. But in the grand scheme of things, they're bloody good. I was gonna say the other I think the other kind of um, point to that is that actually there's a complete, probably this strikes in Michael Cox's camp. The reason he has no appreciation of tennis is he's never picked up a racket in his bloody life. There's absolutely no idea what goes into that and the physicality. I mean, can, like genuinely, can you imagine Lionel Messi playing a six-hour Australian Open final against Cristiano Ronaldo and still producing that quality in the bloody Aussie heat? I mean, these guys play in winter all the time. It's like, it's not even hot. In, a, in many of these places, comparatively, <laughs> I mean, you joke, but uh, I'm being like, you know, a bit over the top here. But you know, in terms of sporting feats, tennis players are regularly proving athletic remarkability that footballers simply don't have to with like a 90 minute game. I know their seasons are quite long, but they're nowhere near as long as tennis is. And I've seen Djokovic get himself into some of the most remarkable positions, even if he wasn't a tennis player. I mean, I don't know what he's doing with his legs all the time. He's kind of come. You see him like training with what what uh, gymnast team was he training with? Where he's just getting into the splits and stuff. I mean, he's just such a phenomenally weird athlete as well. I, I just don't see how you can possibly dismiss these guys out of hand. It's crazy. To yeah, me. It, it was. I think that's the thing what wound me up is the dismissive. He replied to somebody on Twitter like just completely dismissed this idea. He, he just goes like Lionel Messi is definitely better at football than Djokovic is at tennis. And he's like, well, what what exactly are you using to to back that up? Right, because Lionel Messi has. He has, some champion, he, has, he has some La Liga where there's two teams who win the La Liga, occasionally a third team. Right? Yeah. He has three Champions Leagues, and now he has one... Um, what Copa America. Copa, Copa America. America. Um, Novak Djokovic, right, has... Is he on 20 now or 19? 20. 20. 20. He has 20 Grand Slams, right, all against the other best players in the world. <laughs> I don't get where you're coming from that it's not close and Messi's the winner. Michael Jordan has six NBA titles. He never lost in the finals mm. to anybody. Like Sugar Ray Robinson's like boxing career before he was old is ludicrous. How you can be so confident in saying that this is he's definitely better than anybody else. The only way you can come to that conclusion, as I said at the start of the argument, is if you don't watch any other sport except for tennis, except for football. <laughs> and if you don't watch any other sport except for tennis, you'll be on our side. Yeah. <laughs> I think if you don't watch any sport other than tennis, you'll definitely be on Novak Djokovic. I mean, I think 
I think it's going to, it went even further and this didn't get enough attention either. He didn't only say they're better than any, any other person at any other sport. He said they're better than anything, anybody at anything. Yeah, I mean, that, that's obviously... He said that? <laughs> <laughs> he, was like, yeah, he, said, he said that, but better than anyone in the public eye. So it's like, right, okay, is Lionel Messi better at football than Jimi Hendrix was at playing the guitar? <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> going into odd territory now. Yeah. Is, is Messi better at football than uh, Stephen Hawking? Was yeah. Or... yeah. And it, and it, but the thing is, if you said that to him, you go, Yes, of course he is. Stop being stupid. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Just, yeah, absolute nonsense. <laughs> well, round Calvin's ears. One thing we can do is thank him for promoting an interesting debate on the nature of sport here on the Love Tennis podcast, uh, which is all we can really ask for from Michael Cox. I mean, we don't ask for anything from Michael Cox, I suppose. Um, please do give us a follow on Twitter, at Love Tennis Pod, where you will see retweets of these sorts of things and Calvin's rantings and ravings and, and all sorts of other things. Do leave us a rating or a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Um, and always, always keep coming back next week and try and have fun if you can. Podcast Network.